I'm Adam Lippy, and this is my interview with director Roger Nygaard. Roger directed Trekkies, Trekkies 2, High Strung with Steve Odekirk and Jim Carrey, back-to-back American Yakuza 2, Suckers, and his new documentary, The Nature of Existence. This podcast, which runs about an hour, covers such topics as how to sell your movie in Japan by adding a versus in the title, how fans of the new Star Trek remake would change the inevitable Trekkies 3, why his fiction films are so damning of humanity and yet his documentaries are so non-judgmental, how to trust your judgment about how foolish you may or may not make your subjects look, and why it sometimes takes the Russian mob to get a Jim Carrey movie financed. As per the usual, seeing the films would help your understanding of the podcast, but it's not a must, and you'll still learn plenty about the low-budget world. Plus, there's a good story about Ili Samaha. Finally, Roger forgot to pimp his websites during the interview, so he uh, asked me to pimp them here. So if you'd like to read more about him or interact with him, please visit rogernygard.com or thenatureofexistence.com. Was uh, blowing up Bobcat Goldthwait as much fun as it looked? <laughs> it was certainly one of the high points of my film career in, a, uh, in an explosive way. Absolutely. The most fun I've ever had blowing up anything. Is, that, is there a long list? I've been blowing stuff up since I was a little kid, you know, and would probably, have, if, if um, I didn't have a positive career direction to point my uh, pyro, pyromaniac tendencies, which luckily I do, who knows where I would have ended up. I, and I, I know you weren't necessarily expecting uh, questions about back-to-back, but I hope you're okay that I'm going to ask them anyway. Oh, of course, yeah, nothing's off the table. Okay, now you did something interesting in that movie, which is you cast a bunch of comedians in dramatic parts, like Steven Soderbergh just did in The Informant. I mean, I got, I got the sense since I saw uh, J. Johansson and, and J. Jake Johansson in a couple of your other films that he was a friend, but there were a number of other comics in small parts, like Fred Willard, who I know is in High Strung, but is there, was there a rhyme or reason behind that? Yeah, well, at that evolved organically because my first job in Hollywood was working for a company that managed comedians. Mm-hmm. It's a company called Rollins, Joffe, Mora, and Bresner. Mm-hmm. And so I spent five years working for them, starting at the bottom as their messenger. And then I became an assistant and then a talent scout. So during that time, I met a lot of comedians. And to this day, I'm still friends with several and often try to cast them in my movies whenever possible. Which I guess is why you had Steve Ray Fromstein in The Nature of Existence. Yeah, it continues to this day. All of my friends at the beginning of the movie are all stand-up comedians. Joe Keyes is a stand-up comedian, Bobby Gaylor, Stevie Ray Fromstein, and Jeff Bolt. And then back-to-back, there's two scenes in a, or maybe even three scenes in a topless bar, but you had an R rating and didn't, there weren't any topless women, and it's not like I needed to look at breasts. It was just distracting. Did we, did we get an R rating or was it PG-13? It's pretty violent, and I think it's R-rated. I wonder, yeah, I, I, good question. Because I, I, I know we were aiming for PG-13 when we were shooting it, and that's why there's no real cursing. Uh-huh. And that's why they kept their tops on. And so the, there is a lot of shooting, but it's not graphic. You don't see a lot of blood splatter. So the film gets played on cable almost constantly. It's very cable friendly. It, it, it oh yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, there are there is a bit of gore. I mean, again, like it's not it doesn't bother me. I was just like, wait a minute, this is somewhere between a medium R and a light R. Were you intending to release it theatrically? Is that why you aim for the PG thirteen? Uh, that we didn't want to take that 
possibility off the table. Okay. And once it was finished, it was bought by HBO, and so it became an HBO original mm-hmm. as opposed to a theatrical release. And did they give it the American Yakuza 2 subtitle, or is that somebody else? The company that financed it, Overseas Film Group, uh-huh. also known as First Look Pictures, had uh, intended it to always be American y- an American Yakuza semi-sequel. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen the first American Yakuza, so I have no idea if there's any continuity between the two films. I assume not. But The only continuity is of the theme. It's Yakuza versus Mafia, because that sells big in Japan whenever it's something versus something. Mm-hmm. Godzilla versus Megalon. Well, have you ever seen Bruce Lee versus Gay Power? <laughs> Perfect example. I'm not making that up. That really exists. <laughs> that's, that's an immediate... Uh, positive in terms of PR when you're selling a movie in Japan. So you're yeah, saying that the, bl- the Ballistic the X versus Sever was was not successful here, but it was in Japan? <laughs> they don't care how boring it was? Okay. It's, it's like a guarantee in Japan. And so anyway, that was the mandate for those films in order to get one-third of the financing for the film, which came from Japan. Okay. And then you had to cast a couple of their Japanese actors in the movie. Well, it wasn't so bad because those two guys were pretty good, I thought. Considering, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was the challenge. You know, you you write a movie with verses in the title, you know, Yakuza versus Mafia, and you accept a couple of their actors, and mm-hmm. you just had to provide five set pieces, five action set pieces, and they're happy. And so, was your intention to sort of make a comedy around that? My intention was to play it pretty straight, so it could function as an action picture, with a, a sort of a sly nod to the genre mm-hmm. at the same time. I guess you could call it a very subtle parody, in, in my mind, anyway. No, I caught it. <laughs> I, yeah, I, really? I, think, I think the parody was evident, uh, honestly, most of the way through. <laughs> uh, more absurd some of the scenes get, I assume, that it was joking around. Yeah, uh, we had fun. Um, and within uh, Back to Back or American Yakuza 2, Beyond Thunderdome, or whatever you want to call it, was it your choice to do all the cross-cutting? back and forth, like the meanwhile back at the three different stories. I mean, I know that gets you compared to Pulp Fiction, which I don't think is fair because it's really only vaguely resembling it, but was that someone's idea of trying to make it look like that? I wonder, did Pulp Fiction come out? What year did that come out? 94. So, we shot this in 94 also. Mm-hmm. So, it wasn't a direct antecedent mm-hmm. to writing the script and making the film. They kind of were both products of that time when cross-cutting was kind of becoming in vogue, generally. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think. It's been a while since I wrote that script, and I know there were some films that were really influential to us, primarily Hong Kong-style action pictures. Okay. You know, like The Killer. Right. Hard-boiled, full-contact yeah. stuff. Yeah. And even the like a Chinese ghost story. You know, the magical movies, but primarily uh, the Hong Kong action films. And so, uh, multiple storylines, you know, it came from somewhere, but I can't tell you where. It's been too long. It wasn't the multiple storyline angle. It was like you had wipes and and all sorts of, like... The, oh, well, like, the wipes thing, that yeah. was me just going nuts with the editing tools because I had just finished, spent, I just spent two years writing, producing, and editing promos and commercials for TNT Latin America. Oh, okay. And so that was where I learned all my editing editing tricks, or really refined all my editing tricks. What about a Star Wipe? You didn't throw that in? 
was like, what's left on the palette that we haven't used yet? What I noticed about your uh, fiction films, like High Strong and Suckers, and uh, especially uh, the thing that you did in Creep Tales, although I don't know what you would originally call that. I mean, it's been, it's I guess, appeared in three or four different compilations, right? Something like that? Yeah, that was my first uh, full, well, my first budgeted short film. Everyone in them is so deeply unhappy all the time. I mean, it's not just, you know, yeah, you made a a short horror film, and yeah, people are going to be unhappy in that. But back-to-back, there's not one moment of lightness except at the very end, and that feels kind of phony, actually. Um, And Suckers, even, even, that's, that's even... That's more cynical, and you know I can see you know what it's modeled on, but it's it, I thought it was pretty funny actually. Was that negativity? I mean, high strung is just all negativity. Um, yeah, and, two ninety minutes of one guy complaining and right. about everything. Was that part of the reason that you started making documentaries? That you, you, your documentaries all share something is that they don't really make judgments on people, and the fiction films are all everyone's horrible. They're completely nihilistic. <laughs> Well, certainly nihilism or existentialism, which are related, clearly, you know, have have a connection with my current film. Well, sure, because the, the little kids are, are existentialists in, in the nature of existence. Yeah. yeah. Well, and there's a guy in back-to-back in a wheelchair, Leland Orser. Yeah, yeah, I recognize him. I'm like, wow, you know, I guess he just showed up because he's a friend. Because he, he just had a big part in Seven. Or maybe that yeah. maybe probably simultaneously, but I don't know. Go ahead. Well, it was kind of, that, that was a moment, too, of a, of a guy just being philosophical in a wheelchair next to an armed killer, and it's just, there's no need for it, plot-wise. Right. It, it was just kind of having fun at the expense of the universe. Right. Were you, I'm not, I'm not trying to get personal, but were you having, like, a bad time during that period, and that's why you started wanting to make sort of lighter films like Trekkies, and, you know, relax and let other people feed the emotions of the film as opposed to, you know, perhaps under the ages it was a little dark? Well, this is a great question because it's something I haven't really considered in detail about my own work. Yeah, you pointed out something really interesting. And so, if looking back in hindsight, I, I'm of two minds about people in the world. My, my narrative films are cautionary tales, which are to try to warn people, you know, about like suckers is a great example, or high strung, you know, it's like warning people about the different possible negative aspects of humanity. You mean the ability to sit through high strung? <laughs> well, you I'm know, just, I'm just messing with you, but it is like I one know, long get, scream fest, yeah. Exactly, uh, you know, like suckers is to me. It was if you want to get rid of the cockroaches, the first thing you have to do is shine a light on them, mm-hmm. and so that's what. what suckers was, partly to me. Here they are. Recognize them so you know them in your daily life when you go out there, you know, to buy your next car or whatever. You know what you're dealing better what you're dealing with. Ironically, it has sort of a, a, a different ultimate impact because the viewing audience for the film primarily are the car salesmen. You can't go on a car dealership lot now and find a car salesman who hasn't seen it or hasn't been forced to watch it by a sales manager. And that, do you know the the recent John Landis documentary, Slasher? Probably they have to watch that too. I mean, that that is uh, not as cynical as your film because it's actual real footage, but it's Mm -hmm. pretty damning. Have you seen that one? Yeah, well, they paired it up on IFC, both premiered on the same night on IFC. It was a great double bill. It was a perfect double bill. 
And so I think my films are cautionary tales. The documentaries are more, they're not cautionary tales. They're like, well, here are people. And the thing is, as a filmmaker, I like people. You, you know, you tell cautionary tales because you want to help people. You want to warn them while you're entertaining. But in presenting them, and that's why the, the non-judgmental aspect, I think, has emerged, I personally don't, I am not a judgmental person of other lifestyles. And when I meet, I like people in general, and so I think that comes through when I profile them. But that doesn't mean I don't have fun with them, you know, and, and I love joking and laughing with people. So I like people who are in the films to be able to see the film and also, you know, enjoy it. Even if we're all laughing. Uh, but, you know, you have no intention of, like, making an upbeat Amanda Seyfried romantic comedy at any point, right? You know what? If I was to choose what I do next, I would be a silly comedy. Oh, okay. Absolutely, because uh, it would be the new challenge. It would be the next challenge. I like, on the other hand, even though you're, you're very good at pointing out a lot of the themes among my movies, the differences are uh, are strong because my first film, a one-room comedy, my second film, an action picture, my third film, a documentary, my fourth film, Suckers, a drama. They're all very different, but the thing they have in common, uh, in addition to what you pointed out, is there is a sense of humor. Finding humor, even the documentary, finding humor in, in humanity. Well, how much involvement did you have on Six Days in Roswell other than the editing? Were you on set or not? Yes. Uh, the director, Kim Johnson, was my second unit director for some footage on Trekkies. Okay. And so it was his idea to do this, so I joined him, and we basically teamed up together and produced and directed the film together. We took turns doing both, and we both went to Roswell, New Mexico. And it, it was a collaboration, but I let him, you know, and he wanted the directing credit, and, and he certainly earned it. So we just we just shared credit. Now, I, I, that's one of the reasons I asked is because of the number of pancake jokes in Six Days in Roswell. I didn't know if that was related. <laughs> You're good eagle eye. Yeah, clearly. There's a theme, a food theme. Well, I meant specifically pancakes. Mm-hmm. Especially, which, yeah, I love pancakes. Who doesn't? Now, uh, in the, I don't know what you want, what, what, what the preference is to call um, the short that you made. Uh, warped. warped? I mean, I mean, part of Creep Tales, part of Tales of the Unknown? I don't know, you know. Oh, no, I mean, it was, I made it as a short, Warped, and then ultimately licensed it to two different companies who, you know, packaged it with other films. Now, there are, I, I thought it was so much better than the other shorts in that compilation. I was stunned how much better it was. Honestly, uh, and I'm not just kissing your ass because, well, then you haven't heard the follow-up questions. Um, you had there was a sincere lunacy to it that it didn't seem so forced, and you included the fattest cop I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> was that a joke, or did you meet someone yeah, well, who was a cop who was so big that he couldn't really move? It was you. You see the same technique in back to back with the fattest mafia don ever. Well, that does, that makes more sense though. Because a mafia don can just sit there. <laughs> uh, Scott Hansen, who plays the cop in Back to Back, I'm sorry, in Warped, mm -hmm. is a stand-up comedian, once again. One of the comedians I know. So I kind of had him in mind from the beginning. Oh, John, John Panette wasn't available at that time? Or? Uh, yeah, I knew, of, I knew of him, and he would have been a good fallback. Or Ralphie May but or something like that. I think Scott Hansen is the largest 
probably at, at the time, you know. And so, to me, it just added a really interesting, new, funny, clever dimension to the idea of the fat uh, police cop mm-hmm. by just taking it beyond whatever has been done before and then making no real mention of it. Right. Except, you know, it has an well, effect. Well, there is sort of a mention of it. He can't even get down the stairs um, with her, you know, actually near him. Yeah, well, he takes up the whole space. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, when he falls over, it's it's like a redwood coming down. Right. While watching it, I mean, I don't know what they asked of you. Was that the whole thing? It just seems like there's so much backstory. Was there a lot of cutting that they had to do to it in terms of length? Or warped? Yeah, like there's backstory missing. Like, you know, it's subtle, oh. but in a way, like, it seems almost... And this is not, a, you know, a disc. In, no, incoherent. I mean, is what it. There are parts that just seem incoherent. Like there's something missing, and I'm like, what? It, you know, was this intended for like a 22 minute broadcast? No, you you picked up on something no one else has noticed, which is it started out as a feature length screenplay. Okay. And which is what I intended to shoot it as, but couldn't raise enough money to do it properly. I felt as a feature length, so I cut it down to a short. And shot that. So the thing that is in Creep Tales, is that supposed to be the whole thing? Or that is what you shot? Yeah. Okay. Because there's a disconnect, and you can figure out, I guess, what's between the lines, but I was not never sure, like, you know, if that was right. Yeah, that's because it was, its original format was a 90-minute strip. And how much uh, inspiration did you take from stuff like Evil Dead? Uh, Oh, huge. To me, Evil Dead is the Citizen Kane of the 80s. Right, but there's so much stuff that's a, that that you you use the that even Peter Jackson stole later for Brain Dead. Yeah, um, well, that that had come out just before I made Warped, and so that was a huge influence. Evil Dead, uh, you know, two Evil Dead two specifically, not Evil Dead one as much. Really, Evil Dead two is like 1987, and it says here that Warped is 86. Well, that's wrong. No, I shot it in 88. Okay, and the releases would be 90, 90, 91. Like that. Okay. 94. I think one came out in 94. But yeah, I shot it. No, I'm going to say that IMDb is right and your your memory is wrong. I'm going to say that. <laughs> yeah, they got that wrong. Oh, and re- regarding the the dead baby thing, um, do you get royalties from the movie Grace, or you don't? <laughs> no, that, that was our, there's actually it's probably not in in the compilation you saw, but we had a, sort of a bonus outtake of where the baby flies around the attic at the end. That's only on probably, on, uh, on strings or something. Yeah, well, it just kind of has magical powers, okay. you know. And it was sort of like a like an after credits bonus. If I ever put that on DVD, I'll certainly add that. Regarding suckers, it, I thought it was very entertaining, considering how well worn that material normally, you know, already has been by that point. Like Glengarry Glen Ross and used cars and that and Cadillac Man and that sort of stuff. But why was there the shootout at the end? I mean, I know why plot-wise there was, but it just seemed like you were on a roll and it was sharp, and and then that was like, well, we got to wrap it up quick. Yeah, there was a blend there. You know, in hindsight, I would have probably done that film much differently, you know, and just stayed with the car sales stuff Mm -hmm. alone. But part of getting a film financed at that time was you had to be able to make foreign sales. Mm -hmm. And to make foreign sales, you got to have a trailer that's got some guns and, and and some bodies hit the floor, or at least it makes it much easier. Couldn't you just use that song and then people will get the hint at the bodies at the floor? You know, 
I wish, I, I wish in hindsight, but the company that financed it was the same company, or actually was the one that we were initially going to uh, sell it to was the same company that released Back to Back and uh, Overseas Film Group, and their whole business plan is to make foreign sales on films. Oh, I so figured they're, 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 I've seen a lot of films that they've put their name on, and they do work much just like. I don't even know if it exists anymore, but Franchise Pictures, which is, I guess, a bigger budget version of that, or Millennium Films. Yeah, yeah. The Avi Lerner. And I don't even know if Ely Samaha is still in business, because I know he got sued and lost yeah. all that money. I've met, I've met him. Um, is he as charming as he seems to be? I'll or, tell you an Ely Samaha story. I, I brought a script to him. It was called The Best Meatloaf in Town, and it was about a, a bank heist mm-hmm. that takes place in Pennsylvania, upstate, you know, in the country. Uh, you know, script I loved, written by Bobby Gaylor, who was in uh, The Nature of Existence at the beginning. And so they were interested. I went to meet with him, and he, you know, it's about these ex cons who drive into Pennsylvania and go and hold up a bank. So the first thing he says was, I love your script. I have not read it, but I, but I believe it is wonderful. I believe you're very talented. Now, can we shoot this in South Africa? <laughs> uh,. I don't know. <laughs> were you, you going to change the uh, Philadelphia, or, you know, or the Pennsylvania people to Zulus or something? I don't get it. But that's how he thought. He had some money available in South Africa, and he doesn't. Didn't, he never read scripts. Apparently, he was just told that if he can get he doesn't know he, that, he doesn't know anything about movies. He he's a dry cleaning magnate. <laughs> He realized if he can attach names, you can make some foreign sales. Right, but he's famous, not just that, he's famous for, like, negotiating with former, like, sort of fading stars like Stallone and Van Damme and Seagal and getting them to take less money for some dream project, which ended yeah, up being right. under finance, but... Yeah, it's, it's, I'm sure that they thought they would attach Stallone to this script and shoot it in South Africa. If they could, then, then they make we would have made a movie. But it was so absurd mm-hmm. that... I couldn't even understand how we would proceed from that point. Did High Strong get theatrical release? I don't think it did, right? Which one? Six Days? High Strong. Oh, High Strong? Technically, it did in one theater. Okay. But not beyond that. Oh, was it a a sort of contractual requirement at that point? It was uh, an attempt to launch a theatrical, but it it, didn't go beyond the one theater. And was that... I know there was a three-year delay in the release, which could have been related to anything, but was that part of, was the attempt before that, and then they just shelved it after that? Well, it was the producers themselves forewalling it mm-hmm. uh, in attempts to utilize that to help, uh, help find a distributor. Okay. And uh, a few years later, they finally licensed it to Rocket Pictures, who then put it out on home video. And uh, the producers were these two Russian guys, Vladimir and uh, Serge. And Serge was the sole investor who financed the movie. And I discovered he had fled the country a few years later under multiple indictments. Apparently, you know, his, the money his money was not legitimate or something. I don't, I'm, I'm not it's all no kind way. of shadowy. I don't, I don't believe that at all. <laughs> it's all a little shadowy. But now, not, you know, not, many not years later... Surge. No, I, I can't. Yeah, but Surge is back in, in Russia somewhere, uh, apparently not allowed to visit the United States. How dare you blemish his name? <laughs> but, you know, uh, when you're a filmmaker, you don't ask to see credentials when somebody says, hey, I'll finance your movie. No, I figured wow. one of the things that fascinates me about 
especially in your case where you went from making low budget sort of happy documentaries, you know, from sort of mean and nasty fiction, low budget fiction films is the, the back and forth. Well, I don't even know how you do that mentally, but I guess that would be my next question. How do you do that mentally? How do you get into a different mode? And if you were to shoot it, you know, if you went and finally made your, your silly comedy, it, would it have the mean spirited edge of high strong or be a little lighter? I would, I mean, if I have others, it would be just a very light, funny comedy. Uh, you know, I guess you could call me an optimistic cynic. When I look at human nature, it seems like we have some very bad tendencies. But on the other hand, I'm very optimistic about what so we can you, accomplish. So you're not a tabula rasa kind of person? <laughs> I don't think there's a split. You know, I think we're, you know, we have a certainly a genetic card, a certain amount of genetic cards we're dealt, mm-hmm. which limits our, our choices. And then our environment, of course. Oh, so you're 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 a combination of nature and nurture sort of thing. Yeah, uh, from what I've seen, it's it's, it's really probably a fifty fifty sixty forty somewhere in there kind of split, depending. I mean, a retarded child is probably more like eighty twenty. Mm-hmm. You know, it, what you're dealt greatly affects the choices you can make in your life. Mm-hmm. So to, we all to different 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 degrees are affected by both. Um, I also have to compliment you on that gag in, uh, in Suckers where the guy puts the desk outside. That was hilarious. Um, True story. Yeah. Oh, I believe it happened, but I thought it was really funny, especially in the presentation. <laughs> um, I also have to say that how do you like to bite this ass is one of the worst lines I've ever heard, which the uh, Lori Lachlan's line, she says to uh, Mandalore when he's coming home, like about kiss- kissing ass or something like that, and that's her come on line. Oh. And so I compliment you on writing one of the worst things I've ever heard. Um, we're not right. If you're on a scale, there's that, and then above that is a David Tui film called The Arrival. Do you know that one? Uh-huh. And uh, Charlie Sheen says, "I look like a can of smashed assholes." That's worse. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'll take I'll take best in any category. Oh yeah, yeah. But you know, your your top five in terms of anything I can remember offhand, um, anything that was sort of in a legitimate film. I, I can say well, you that. Know, that relationship between uh, Bobby and his wife Donna, Louis Mandalore's character, mm-hmm. was based on my co-writer's life, Joe Yannetti, and his wife at the time. And we really had to soften her up and make her look much better. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, you know, most people aren't as attractive as she is at that point, so I would assume <laughs> that it's not. <laughs> well, she still comes across as pretty difficult. Yes, yeah, she's a little shrewish, if that's what you mean. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, they got divorced, uh, Joe Yannetti and his wife. And so it was a little bit of Joe working that out in writing this movie with me. I was hoping that she'd seen the movie and that's what, why she divorced him. How and dare you, how dare you present her. me in a semi-pleasant light? I don't think she would know to recognize herself. Um, and People are not self-aware. Oh, of course not. Suckers uh, moves along very quickly. You share something with another director uh, named Mark Lester. Um, who made Commando and uh, Showdown Little Tokyo, and then like a you know bu- class of '84. In the fact that um, Suckers, like any of his movies, has absolutely no second act, um, uh-huh. it just skips from the first to the third act. Was there a reason? I mean, do you do you know what I'm getting at? Like, there's no there's not much development. I don't mean the character so much as the story. You know, he's learning on the job and he's really good at it, and then the violence kicks in. Like, there's no middle. 
Was that a, a sort of a time crunch sort of thing? You cut things out? I mean, the movie's already pretty short, so I didn't know if it was a, a matter of financing. It has more to do with what we touched on earlier, that if you look at all my films, they're all kind of subtle parodies mm-hmm. of genres, which I, I guess I, it's, I can't really help myself. I like to point out flaws or uh, point, take the obvious and point it out to people by uh, making fun of it. And that's uh, a casualty to, to that attitude as well. Oh, you know, so I there's no development because make, you're making fun of something, so... Well, you, you know, ideally, if you want to make a successful movie, you have three acts, you know, and boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy wins girl back. You mm-hmm. just tell that story again, over and over and over and over again. But aren't we kind of tired of that? Can we try something fresh? Oh, it wasn't a criticism. Yeah. It was just an observation. It was, he does yeah. that, and it's like he's cutting to the chase. And he made a movie called Showdown Little Tokyo with Dolph Lundgren and Brandon Lee, which pre-credits is about 75 minutes for a big-budget Warner Brothers movie. And there is no... I mean, like, it's just one action scene to the next. There is... And, you know, the development is it's just non-existent. And I appreciated the economy of it. I was just curious, like, how did you get that? You know, did someone... Did, did someone... movie like that. You know, remember uh, Gone in 60 Seconds, the original? Yes. One of my favorite movies ever. Just because there's no plot and it's all car chase at the end? It's just wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that when I was a kid. And... You know, it greatly affected me. It's just, wow, this is an amazing movie. And it doesn't follow those rules at all. Well, because he was, it was more of a showcase for, for a Halicki than it is for anything else. Yeah, and just mass destruction. And, you know, tri- the triumph of the thief mm-hmm. at the end. Which is very counter to what Hollywood requires. You've got to have all thieves be punished. Well, they didn't punish him in the remake, but I don't even know what he was in the remake necessarily. Um, yeah. That was one of those weird hundred million dollar movies with cheap special effects, and that ends in a steam and flame factory. Uh, I don't know why. Yeah, why, why you have to do that? Like, if you spend all that money, why are, you don't even buy a steam and flame factory? Say again. A steam and flame factory. Mm-hmm. You know how almost every action movie in the eighties and early nineties ended mm-hmm. uh, in some sort of factory that you know had fire and sparks, but you have no idea what they possibly made there. Well, it's also because you can, those are locations you can rent pretty readily. Right. I understand why they'd be in a low-budget movie, but not a $100 million movie. Yeah. Um, and I guess the thing of remakes, if you were to make Trekkies 3, how do you think the, the remake, the Starship Troopers version of this remake, is really what I would call it, it would affect the fandom and or what kind of new fans it would be? Well, you know, yeah, maybe a trilogy is demanded. Um, there's still some continents we have not visited, you know, that are uh, virgin territory. Antarctica? Africa as well, yeah. uh, Asia. So we can certainly go to those places, but obviously we we want to focus on the new fans from the new film and how that's affected it and the new questions that's raised. And are those appropriate fans? Are the, is the old better? Is the new better? Well, considering you, what about in your viewpoint? How do you feel about the remake? Considering you'd focus oh, so hard. Personally? Yes. Uh, well, my analysis is it's. It, they made a film, a Star Trek action movie for non-Trekkies. Yeah, and that's fair. Brought, brought in a whole new group of people. When you go to a convention, or when you, if you went to a Star Trek convention in the months after the new Star Trek movie opened, you'd see people walking around, like looking around, wide-eyed, looking up in the air, and like checking everything out, which you wouldn't normally see because everyone at a Star Trek convention has already seen all that stuff before. 
That's how you recognize the newbies. So it, it brought a whole new group in, but it also created a different universe from Gene Roddenberry's universe. Gene Roddenberry's universe was a place where mankind or a consciousness, alien human consciousness, was supreme. There was no overall creator. Kirk spent half of his time every other episode unmasking false gods. You know, your god is a computer. Even the one that Shatner directed, that's exactly what that's about. Yeah, right. That, that, that was the point of Gene Roddenberry's universe. The universe in the new Star Trek is controlled by destiny, which implies some kind of force behind the scenes that's supernatural, that's arranging things to happen in a certain way, which is contrary to Gene Roddenberry's uh, intention. See, I thought the intention of the new one was just to make it look like a really expensive TV show. Maybe well, that's on the surface, but underneath, when you've got all these coincidences happening, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when they jettison, uh, Spock jettisons Kirk to the ice planet, mm-hmm. and he happens to roll into right into a cave where the old Spock is, first of all, what are the odds? Well, yeah, I mean, then there's that whole, like, uh, the, the villains, why are they waiting 25 years knowing, you know, with that one spot? It's very strange. Gonna, that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, and why doesn't Spock, you know, get on the phone and call Planet Vulcan when he can see this, what's going down from this ice planet? He ran out of minutes. And how does he build a fire on an ice planet? Where is he getting wood from? So, you know, all this stuff, is in the, the writers uh, answered these uh, questions about uh, coincidence by saying it was destiny. And destiny is another way of saying God, you know, or a, a, a an unseen hand behind the scenes arranging things. Oh, so their justifi- justification of their contrivances is like, look, everything's a deus ex machina, and, and, and we don't yes. have to explain anything. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm one of about five critics who gave that a bad review. Um, <laughs> not not what you oh. just said, but the, the movie, because I, I just, it, to me, it looked like the Muppet Babies version of Star Trek. Well, they just raised... They violated so many original principles. It, they made a, an exciting movie to watch, and which thrilled audiences and brought new fans in. You know, oh, I don't. I'm not even. I'm not even a Trekkie. I'm not even a Star Trek person. I only like a few of them. But I, I'm just objecting to it on a on a purely critical level and the laziness. Well, of the you dialogue. and I are on the same camp. <laughs> okay. I'm on the same camp with you because uh, once you can beam somebody on board a ship that's traveling at warp eleven, uh-huh. you could do anything. Right. There's and no so, rules. Yeah, and so there's no longer a plot. You could beam onto any ship anywhere, anytime, and do whatever you want. You don't even need ships anymore. All right, well, now I will get to the main purpose of this promotion uh, and talk about your new <laughs> film. Although, I guess I'm curious, like, what's it, you know, now that you're mostly directing TV, is that, you know, I'm assuming that's where you were on the set when you emailed me on Wednesday, but is that... Uh, is that Wednesday more? was a commercial. I was directing oh, a okay. commercial. But the amount of TV that you're doing and commercials and stuff like that, is that, you know, to just to keep working in that sense, which is perfectly valid reason. But, you know, you, I never know, like, you're trying to finance your next film or you're comfortable working within the television realm. All of the above. I utilize these TV shows to finance the making of The Nature of Existence. That's one reason it took four years, too, to complete the film. So it work for a while, save up some funds, and then go on the road and do interviews, come back, work some more, and keep going. But on the other hand, I'm always open to the new challenge. And so whether it's I've gone from the spectrum of TV shows like Bernie Mac and The Office to Disney Channel shows working with kids and directing shows like Zeke and Luther, which is on Disney XD. So I love the uh, spectrum of doing, of, of the variety 
and same in my work, you know, whether it's my features, a variety of genres, and television, a variety of genres, commercials, same thing. It's It all keeps it fresh, and each different uh, genre or style of filmmaking informs the others. I learn from all of them. Well, I guess considering that in, uh, in Nature of Existence, did you go back to stuff like uh, James Toback's Heaven or, I'm sorry, The Big Bang or Diane Keaton's Heaven in terms of getting like that similar vein of, of what if, like what do you think documentary about, you know, God and everything else like that? Oh, yeah. You know, or what the bleeps. Well, you know, I've seen all of these, and I have different opinions of all of them, of course, as I'm sure you I mean, I, yeah, I was going to say, what the bleep, I don't know if that's even legitimate. I mean, that's a, that's a, that might as well be a Scientology ad, even if it's not about Scientology. Well, uh, it's about metaphysics, not about physics, and that's the distinction that I think has to be made. When I saw that movie, I really enjoyed the movie on some levels, mm-hmm. but I really felt like, well, I would ask these guys much different questions if I had them in a room, and... Ultimately, that's what I did then. Right. Well, none of them were professionals. That was what the, one of the strangest things was that they didn't. Well, I guess it made sense actually at the time, but they didn't. You didn't know who was talking, and that's because none of them were experts on anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I, I tried to, you know, taking that that same, you know, reaction I had. You know, I I looked for actual experts. You know, well, who's who, who knows about string theory? So I went to the the expert the guy who invented it or discovered it, for instance and asked him about masturbation or, you know, the afterlife or the soul. And that's obviously not his area, right? But why couldn't he have an opinion? Well, masturbation may be his area. You don't know. Well, it's all of our area. That's the point, right? uh, The physicists I found even more philosophical oftentimes than the people who we consider religious experts. Well, I actually consider people like Christopher Hitchens and uh, Richard Lohard Dawkins as religious experts in a sense because their whole job is to disprove it. It's their whole mm-hmm. unifying theory. Um, so they probably study it more than people who like to quote the Bible. Or actually, I guarantee they study it more than people who like to quote the Bible. Um, well, then there's the people in the middle, like Leonard Susskind, who are scientists whose goal is not to disprove religion, it's to get to search. Uh, for answers that bring us closer to truth, whatever it may be. Now, the first 15 or maybe 20 minutes of The Nature of Existence is kind of glib a little bit, um, and you let everyone have their say, but also, you know, it's a little, it's light and jokey, um, and then it gets serious by the point of the, you get start talking about the gay church. When did you decide, was that in the editing room when you decided to switch in terms of feel and tone? Yes, documentaries, and this one's no exception, are made in the editing room. When I was shooting, I didn't know where I was going to go until I got there and it evolved. But I found when I was making Trekkies, I used the same pattern, where you start out entertaining people, just make them laugh, draw them in, have a good time, and then you start introducing more serious notes as you go on. I think you've got to hook them a little bit first before you start doing that. Is that then you, that's why you're a little easier on the, the audience? It's not intense right away, you mean? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, if you, if you, it's just like making love, you know? You've got to have some foreplay in order to, to uh, open up people's minds. You've got to lubricate their minds a little bit first, and then it's easier to slip in some ideas. 
Is that what we're calling sperm now? Well, it, yeah, it, it's codified ideas in, in the genetic co- code in, in sperm. Now, you're sort of at a disadvantage because of the number of documentaries that have been made, I guess, during the four years that, that you know, it took you to make this, that have covered that similar subject, whether it be an Arthur Dong film or, or the, you know, how religion can get out of control. Like, you saw, you saw the documentary Audience of One, where the guy, the pastor, convinces his whole church that they're going to go make a movie in Italy. Uh, no, I haven't heard of that one. It's, it's fascinating. Because he's completely, it's a combination of, he's totally deluded and he's a con man at the same time. Uh, it's happening in San Francisco, and it, it's a very interesting movie. Well, by definition, you know, that's what a lot of religious organizations are. You know, they're self-deluded money-making machines. Right. But you, you were at the disadvantage, like, trying to show, and I don't mean the freaks, but you had that one guy who was wearing, you know, who said, oh, God is love, and then he's wearing the no homo pin on it to show his hypocrisy, of, like, immediately. Do you feel you're a little bit disadvantaged because movies like Hell House and Jesus Camp and that sort of thing, which are heavy and much more critical and not incisive necessarily, they're more heavy-handed, honestly, but that, that they're sort of driving home like the the more serious uh, discrepancies in in the you know religious practices in the documentary. Maybe, I uh, maybe uh, in terms of distribution angles potentially, if someone's already been there, mm-hmm. or maybe they open up more awareness or interest, too. I mean, I, I don't know. I can't answer whether it hurt, hurt, hurts or helps. All I know is that no one can make the same film I can make because it, I'm I'm filtering the world through my point of view. Mm-hmm. And it's true. I started this five and a half years ago before Bill Maher started Religious. He finished before me because he had more funds and more resources. And well, you know, a, you, the more smug you bring, the more money comes in. <laughs> exactly, and he's got plenty of uh, smug. Yes, he does have a lot of smug. Would I have done this any differently? I, I'd say no. Somebody asked me, uh, "Why are you making this film?" And I had to think and say, "I don't have any choice. This is what I do, and this is the idea I'm most interested in right now." And so, even if there's 15 other films that opened before me, I still have to finish this cathartic process for myself. And if it's never released, it's still worthwhile for me. And if it is released, it's great. And when people ask me, what are you doing next? I don't mind telling everybody what I'm doing next. If if they make five documentaries on the same topic, because they're not going to make the same one I'm making, no matter what it is. Well, I mean, I guess part of the concern is like something, there was a documentary last year sort of on the same subject called Oh My God. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was... That tried to sort of excuse the shallowness by making itself sort of a Koina Scotsy-like travelogue. And did you ever have the inclination that you might have to, you know, oh, i got to pre this up a little bit, or that never even came to mind? I can only, no, I mean, I can only make the film that I can make, regardless of what anyone else is doing. Although I'm, I, I readily admit I'm influenced by all the movies. No, no, I'm not even suggesting that, you know, Oh My God was released last year and who knows it was production. I just meant that they, I guess, you know, lost their nerve and so a lot of it is pretty pictures. Mm-hmm. While pretty dealing pictures with, are fun. Nothing, you know, I, I just try to keep my shots in focus so <laughs> right. I can use them. Well, actually, speaking about the, the stuff it's in focus. Content. It's content, not, not format. You know, all that matters is content. If, if you have good content, people will tune in, no matter how shitty you shot it. Right. 
No, I agree. But that was one of the contentions I had was that you have, you know, you're a presence in the film, obviously, because you're narrating it. And then we, we know that you're talking to people because you can hear them off screen. But there is some choice. And I, I guess it's a new style, but I, I don't quite get it, which is we, can, we have a, a bunch of shaky cam shots just to see that you are, in fact, behind the camera from afar. Like, they don't look particularly organized. And there's a number of them in the film. Was that to establish? What was that to establish, really? A lot of the times, the shakiest cameras are my co-producer, mm-hmm. Paul Tarantino. He came on board halfway through the film when I was showing him cut footage. That mm-hmm. it, when I, I didn't know what story to tell yet, I just had he like, look at these uh, Christian wrestlers, and I'd show him the, the segment I'd cut together. Mm-hmm. And he said, "You should put yourself in the movie." So you know, in terms of how, how do we tell the story? Very reluctantly, I did, because I realized I can't afford to pay a narrator, and so it is my story, and he was right. So he came on board, and, and he had not really shot cameras before. Like me, we both just read the manual, and so then we knew how to shoot a camera. So the shakiest stuff is Paul's earliest work, and here's my number one tip to filmmakers. Hold the camera steady. I have a pet peeve about really shaky cameras. Well, you know, it wasn't just that, it wasn't just that it was shaky. I mean, yes, that was a little unprofessional, but but in the sense that there was the need to show that you were filming. That was so strange to me, and I didn't get that wasn't. Oh, it was like showing myself on camera. No, 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 not just like you talking to the camera, but there would be a shot, shaky cam shot from quite a bit away, and the shot would be you interviewing the other person. You could see them from afar, and obviously the audio was yeah. still coming in. And I was like, why, you know. You, you know, the that rest of this has a, has a thing, you know, there's a theme to it, there's a feel to it, and this doesn't feel like anything else in the movie. That was, yeah, well, the, the, Paul was shooting that, obviously, because I can't shoot myself, but the, the conscious choice there was to begin inserting myself into the movie in the same way that I was in the journey. And because my journey was me with a camera traveling the world, and half the time it was just me and my camera doing everything, that's what it is. You're seeing the reality of my journey. And how do you avoid um, around more of the uh, uh, ridiculous people that you're around not making judgments? I mean, it's hard because we bring our own judgments to it. Like I see the guy screaming at the college and I'm like, yeah, I've seen people like that and you don't really listen because, you know, he's screaming and he's not making a lot of sense. But how do you avoid making judgments around those types of people? There's two aspects to that. The first is when you're immersed in something, it doesn't seem as strange as sometimes when you take a step back or you look at the footage or you're not a part of something. So like when I'm at a Star Trek convention interviewing people, it's not out of the ordinary for someone to to be dressed up like a Klingon. But when you look at it on tape later, it has a different effect. So when you're in the moment, it's not that strange. But on the other hand, I don't try to change people, so I don't challenge them on what they believe, aside from asking them to explain it, because I truly just want to understand human nature. The whole reason I took this journey was to try to understand better why people can believe things that are so different. When I saw people flying airplanes in the buildings filled with other people, it I just it made my head hurt trying to understand how can they believe what they believe so strongly yet I believe something so vastly different how does that happen and if the the litmus test for who's right is the one who believes it's strongest they win I, I can't even commit to you know buying a new car much less driving it into a building 
you know, immolating myself. I don't believe anything strongly enough, but they do. So how does that happen? Well, what about for pancakes? <laughs> well, that has to do with breaking things down into what's important in life. And one of the things that's important in life is enjoying the moment you're in. And food is a big aspect of the moments we experience. That's why there's a lot of food in the movie. Yeah, I figured that that was part of it. Yeah, uh, pancakes, pizzas, you know. Well, there's some soul food, too, in there, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. yeah barbecue. I had a lot of food on the road. I love food. Um, but I love being in the moment. There was a guy in there. I can't remember his name, but he looked like Harry Knowles, if you know what I'm talking about. Um, Aha. Yes. Spiritual guru. Aha. But he was like even more self-important than, than Harry Knowles, but with even filthier mouth somehow. Um, <laughs> the, yeah, the, the guru with, his, with the F word. Right. And a, a weird constant. I mean, how do you, I mean, do you just sit back and let him rant? I mean, how does that work? I mean, I'm not asking you to make judgments on him. I was already doing it. So it would just be difficult to take him seriously. Like, even if you're there open-minded, then he just starts saying, fuck, 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 fuck. And like, you're supposed to be spiritual and you can't even think of better words, really? He's not what you expect, and that's what I liked about Aha. And his appearance leads you to judge in one respect. But then when you hear what he says, he said some really uh, insightful things accompanied by cursing. Right, but that almost negates it. It negates the elegance of it. Which is a really interesting dichotomy, and that's why I put it in the movie, because it's, it's so unexpected. And I guess if, well, you're not going for a rating at all, are you? Because you could probably get by with a PG-13 if you cut out some of his stuff, but... Well, you know, for... Uh, bleeped it or something. I'm not asking yeah. you to make an edit. I'm just like, well, you know... You three know, bleeps. Three, three, yeah, three bleeps for television. Oh, you mean you already did a TV cut? Well, I've, I've built in the bleeps for okay. when that time comes, okay. on a, you know, the TV version. And when you were uh, interviewing the was a pastor's wife, and she said with a completely serious face, it's so much easier to submit. Did you feel the need to call a counselor for her or something? <laughs> it's very common. When I was doing post-production, the online editor was watching the movie, and we would watch that part where the uh, Leonard Susskind is talking about the universe and how there's a multiverse and how there's the DNA of the universe, etc., etc., string theory. And I asked the online editor, did you understand that? And he said, well, it was kind of complicated. And then when the pastor says, everything is one thought, or that's sorry, the rabbi in Jerusalem, Baruch Kaplan, says, everything that happens is one thought in the mind of God. I said, did you understand that? And he said, that's much easier. So it tells you a lot. You know, sometimes it's just people take the easy road when trying to figure out reality is a very difficult road. I don't know, but it's just really depressing me <laughs> from somebody. Yeah, I don't really want to try. Yeah, just, <laughs> well, my, I'm, I'm going to live in this patriarchal world and just love it. But does it, uh, do you understand why she would say that? Or I, get, I get why she would say it, but I would be concerned. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's hard to change people, mm -hmm. but I think our best approach is to just try to understand them and help other people understand each other. So, if nothing else, I hope this movie allows people to understand each other a little better, because the big lesson I learned is we're never all going to agree, ever, on this planet. Because we're never going to agree 
our only hope is that we can maybe, if we don't agree, at least understand why we each think differently. And then that will allow for tolerance of different beliefs. I felt a much greater understanding for people after meeting them, especially when I didn't know what a stink was before I started. Now I've got a much greater understanding. And I'm not fearful of them because we are, I think human instinct is to be fearful of things we don't understand. If you're fearful of something, you, you tend to be more likely to act uh, aggressively or negatively toward it. Protectively, you think you, you've got to protect what you do know. Well, on that, on that same line of thinking, that if there was one thing that you, you were sort of playing a little safe with, it was sort of being reverential towards uh, Native Americans and Muslims. And I can understand that because we know less about them than we know about Christianity. It's, and I'm not suggesting that you mock them, but you did allow people to make fools of themselves. You know, usually the Christians and the uh, Muslims and the, and, and the natives really, you know, it was, it was more reverential. Mm-hmm. Was that like on your mind? Like, you know, I've got, I, I don't want to be PC, but I don't think it's okay to criticize this so much or, you know, hang them out to dry as, and I'm not suggesting you did it on purpose because these people spoke on camera, but a lot of the Christians were, looked foolish because of what they were saying. Did I, is your question, did I intend to make them look foolish? No, 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 because I know that you're just letting them talk. But, you know, was there an inkling in your mind of, you know, I, you know, if, they, if the Muslims or the Native Americans say something embarrassing, I'm going to leave it out. Oh, did I give them a, a little extra respect? Right. I'd like to think, I don't know, it's possible, it's entirely possible, but I would like to think I was equally reverential or irreverential toward everybody, whether it was a street theorist, a Native American, a Muslim, or a Christian. So I had some fun at the uh, scientists' expense, you know, sometimes, even though it was pretty reverential to them. The Native Americans, when I met them, part of it's just timing and luck, or lack of luck, but when I arrived, they, I happened to witness a ceremony that was a pretty solemn ceremony. So that's what I, what I saw. And the story they told you know, that the religious, uh, their spiritual leader told me, was kind of one that we sort of know, is how that they lived in a more natural state where they accepted life as natural, whereas when the Europeans came, and particularly Christians, they came and tried to change them and teach them that sex was dirty and sinful. And uh, they didn't even have a concept of shame in their vocabulary or their understanding. They were taught to feel shameful. So it, it's really, it, it just fascinated me. And so I present, you know, what I'm fascinated by to the audience. Sometimes there's a little more levity and sometimes there's less. One of the running themes that seemed to come across was sort of the theme of vanity that a lot of these people have, such as the wrestler guys like, I'll, you know, when I get to heaven, I'll be, you know, I'll have chiseled abs and a nice tan. What, what are the various temptations that you either avoided or failed to avoid when presenting some of the, the people in the film? Like, the wrestlers don't come off very well because of that one guy who says, I'm going to have chiseled abs and, you know, have a nice tan in heaven. And, you know, the, oh, thought, okay. the thought is like, uh, why does that matter if you're in heaven? Hmm. Well, I thought it was explained pretty well by the uh, expert, Alan Katz, I think it was, mm-hmm. who, who has wrote a book on the afterlife, but how... We see the afterlife as an idealized version of this life. Mm-hmm. And for him, it's uh, a nice tan and, and a six-pack. 
because he's a wrestler and physicality is important to him. So it, I learned something about human nature in that juxtaposition. But the Christian wrestlers, people react very differently to them. I think in my films in general, they seem like a Rorschach test. People see in the movie what's more of what's in them as opposed to the movie preaching one particular thing. Oh, right. No, I totally agree with that because I admit to bringing my own judgments to film. I mean, you can't help but not have judgments if you're, if you're a person, you know. No, I didn't hate them, but that one scene made them look pretty silly on top of already being Christian wrestlers. <laughs> well, I hope I hope they are happy with it. I hope they, because I think they'll get their message across and, you know, they have an opportunity to make their, put their message across. But you're obviously not receptive to their message, right? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm biased for a number of reasons, but one of them is because I've seen the Barry Blostein documentary Beyond the Mat. I should have liked that movie a lot. And presenting, like, what happens to washed-up wrestlers, what happens, you know, the, the drugs and the, and the, you know, the broken families and all sorts of things can't help you but, you know, be cynical towards the wrestling and the fact that, you know, wrestling is already contrived and here they are contriving a religious message seems rather, not misguided, but just off. Oh, to your original question, you know, was there temptation? to treat people differently or make fun or, or be more reverential. Mm -hmm. My goal is to treat everybody equally and ask the questions and let the answers fall where they may and get closer to truth, whatever it may be. Well, I mean, in the editing room, when you're sitting there looking at what they actually said, the temptation one way or the other, you know, well, this is funny, but this guy, it makes this guy look foolish. Did you feel yourself holding back in that sense or no? I think, I don't, no, I think the answer no, because what may look foolish to one person will not look foolish to another. Brother Jed has seen the movie and has told me he liked it and uh, would love to screen it in churches. He said that on stage in front of 700 people at the film festival premiere in San Jose. Oh, and no, but you, you, you present him fairly, and, it, and the uh, the debate, and I, I'm not even suggesting that you weren't. The only person who debates it, and I think that's interesting that you said you didn't question anyone, but Stevie Ray Bromstein does question him, and they're kind of locked in a push-pull sort of thing, but it, you presented him fairly, but, like, one of the things I thought of was, was as I said before, the, the, the guy who wore the, you know, no homo pin while saying, you know, well, what is God? God is love. You know, obviously, ridiculously hypocritical there, but... That's almost like a, a piece of footage that's funny and sad at the same time. And it's hard for anybody to be objective about that moment because it's it, it could have been plucked out of like an hour's worth of interviews, but that's just encapsulates that guy. And you were, you know, I'm not suggesting you were judgmental because I've met people like that. When you're in, when you're in the editing room, and since you've done a lot of editing, even outside of your own films, and you're trying to be objective, is there some line that you, you're like, well, I've crossed it by going in this direction, and do you think that any of the footage that's in the film you would have done a little differently in, in some way or another? I certainly have some lines in mind, and if, if I was going to try and write them down, I could probably come up with them, but mostly it's instinct, and when it, you know, that feels unfair, or, that, or, or it's more like, okay, that feels fair. So th that's how I go, and there's a lot of tweaking that goes on before a final product. There's a lot of stuff I took out that felt maybe it was a cheap shot or unfair, and it's instinctual, and it has to do with a person's worldview. My worldview is I like people, even if they're misguided. 
no matter what their religion, when I met them, there's sort of a bonding that goes on. You go through 85 questions like these over two or three or four hours. You know, imagine talking with your friends about these deep questions or somebody. You're going to reach a different level of, of interaction and communication with them and on an intellectual level, but there's an emotional component as well. So even when I was in Mumbai interviewing uh, Dr. Zakir Nayak, who's a Muslim cleric, England has been criticized for allowing him to travel to England because he's got some really incendiary things on record that he said. I met the guy, interviewed him, asked him all the same questions, and we, we I guess you'd call it fellowship is what they call it in a religious sense. We had fellowship together. Do I agree with him? Not on a whole lot of topics, but he's, he's a human being, and one thing I've learned is we're all basically the same human beings. We just want a couple of three, four things. We want to be loved. We want to be uh, accepted by our social group because we're social creatures. We want to be able to take care of our families, you know, have a job, get enough of an income to take care of our families, and share a few laughs with each other. That's about it. The, the last 10% is where we get into trouble. The problem tends to come in when people have power. You know, power corrupts. That's no surprise. And so when people are in power, they change. And the problems are between people in power in our world, not between me and my, my friends and people in my neighborhood or the people I've met or Dr. Zakir Nayak. We all got along great because we discussed important topics together and shared with each other. If the rest of the world, if we were all doing that, you know, it would be a different world as opposed to being pandered to our fears, which is what some, uh, maybe a lot of media outlets do because they're, they have an agenda. My agenda is just to try to understand human nature, not try to maximize oil profits or whatever. Maybe this uh, will help people this movie will help people understand each other a little better. This is the end, beautiful friend.